And I pray with all of my heart that every brother and sister here in this room would take it to heart and understand that you and I are vulnerable. And unless we take to heart the application, how are we going to grow? Would you turn to Mark 14? Mark 14. And we're going through uh, verses 66 to 72. Though 72, I want to dedicate an entire sermon for it next week. Mark Mark 14 from 66. It's... um, the custom of Saving Grace Bubble Church that we go through uh, passage in the scripture, verse by verse, expository preaching. And so we've been going through the gospel of Mark for some time, and we find ourselves in Mark 14 today, the last passage. And it reads, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest. Now, this servant girl literally is slave girl. But for whatever reason, the translators decided to uh, render it as servant. But it is a slave girl of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying about um, what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl, that is slave girl, saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. In verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him before a rooster crows twice you will deny me three times and he began to weep in the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Matthew they add the word bitterly he began to weep miserably with anguish with sadness and sorrow. Christianity is a joyful religion. In fact, we can confidently say that Christianity is the only joyful religion in the world. The Bible says that the sorrows of those who chase after other gods will multiply. But of Christianity, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is of righteousness, of peace, and of joy. Jesus said, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Again, he said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy 
may be made full. John 16, 22, again, Jesus says, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. So indeed, we begin our walk with God with joy in Him and we continue our life with Jesus rejoicing in Him and we are going to be taken into glory for eternity to come and we will forever be basking in an unhindered, uninterrupted enjoyment in Christ. Our lives in a new earth with our new glorified bodies and fellowship with one another will be like an eternal unending banquet with all the bells and whistles to make it a place full of delight and pleasure in Christ. And the great news of the gospel. So we don't have to wait until we go to heaven to experience joy in the Lord. We, be, we can begin here and now on earth, even when we live in this broken world. This is why God has given His people a new nature. This is why God has given us His Holy Spirit and the church and all the promises and the blessings in Christ. He freely gave us all these things in order to find joy in Him now on earth. So brothers, be of good cheer. Our joy in Christ is graciously available and it's freely accessible to all of God's children. But why is it then many a times we believers experience defeat and misery? How is it that the joy of the Lord that is at our disposal, yet many a times we are sad, even to the point of feeling quitting, Throwing in the towel. What is it that steals our joy of the Lord? In Peter's life, we see a man. Or to be precise, a believer who had the joy of Christ at his fingertips. And yet, when his heart was full of fear, denied the Lord three times. Only misery would have filled his heart when he remembered how um, the Lord said to him that you will deny me three times. Brothers, let's go back and get into Peter's mind at that moment when he wept bitterly. Who could conceive the shame, the self-condemnation he felt? Who could describe that bitter remorse and these sharp-stepping thoughts of his conscience? How is it to be so close to Jesus Christ as Peter was, to be the leader of the 12 apostles, to be joyfully leaving everything behind and passionately following the Savior, and yet end up being in his state? 
Let's remember, it was Peter that said to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. How is it now that Peter becomes like a a scaredy cat before the slave girl? And when all the other disciples ran to their caves and were dumbfounded, it was Peter that proudly said to the Lord, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. No one showed more love, deeper trust, genuine joy for Christ than Peter did. No one has followed Christ so closely than Peter. What happened? Because in this narrative, we'll find that while Jesus was truthful before false accusations, Peter was lying before the right accusations. And while Jesus stood his trial faithfully, yet at the same time, Peter fell on his face before a slave girl licking the dust of his unfaithfulness cutting his own soul with every denial that came out of his mouth, dragging his devotion to the Lord through the mud before his enemies. How is it that the mighty has fallen? This story of Peter is recorded for all of us as a great warning. As an alarming bell that must ring in the heart of every soul that is resting in Christ. Don't get too cozy. Don't get too comfortable in the flesh. There is always a battle to fight, sin to kill, lustful desire to sever, laziness to crush, pride to hack to pieces. Peter in this narrative serves as that negative example that we must not follow so that we don't fall victim as he did and lose our joy in the Lord as he lost his joy. I want to remind you of a verse that Paul gave that is so clearly speaks for itself. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And if Peter, the leader of the 12 apostles, fell flat on his face because he did not take heed, I assure you there is no exemption to the rule. It can happen to any of us. If the leader of the great 12 apostles has fallen, then pastors are not exempted. Elders are not exempted. And everyone who professes to be a Christian is vulnerable. In this passage today, and for the rest of the sermon, we're going to look at Peter before the fall. And then Peter at the fall. And the last point, Peter, after the fall, I'm going to dedicate an entire sermon next week 
So we start with Peter before the fall. And again, we ask, what is it that led Peter to come crashing down? Was it the slave girl? Meaning, poor Peter, you know, he was enjoying loving the Lord Jesus and all. And then this slave girl robbed Peter of his devotion to Christ. Is it so? Was it the outside circumstances? You know, because it was a, a freezing cold, dark night and the pressure of the circumstances, you know, Jesus was arrested, the disciples fled. It kind of took toll on Peter. So he was all pure from the inside, innocent. But he kind of got caught off guard. And the circumstances outside of him made him lie. Is it so? No. Absolutely not. You see, Peter's problem was not outside of him. It was inside of him. Nobody stole the joy of the Lord of Peter. He himself gave it away. He was entirely responsible. We need to know, and I want you to to know this, that Peter's denial was not born in a vacuum. It wasn't like he was walking in, in a path of holiness and all of a sudden he fell off a cliff. That wasn't the case. There was a pattern, an ever sliding decline in the walk with God, and he moved from bad to worse. How does a believer reach this point of outright denial of Christ? We want to trace Peter's steps one at a time. We want to be Sherlock Holmes, if you like. We want to analyze Peter. We want to know how he ended up denying the Lord Jesus so that we don't follow his path. So four steps to be exact. Four steps. First, Peter's fall, Peter's fall began by his self-confidence. After the Passover meal, if you recall, and on the way to the garden, and in the same chapter, Mark 14 and verse 27, we find that Jesus said, you will all fall away. Okay, Jesus said that. How did Peter respond? Two verses later in verse 29. Peter says, even though all may fall away. I'm the best you got, Jesus. I will not. Peter was confident of his trust. He never doubted his devotion. He relied on his feelings. I will not. That means I got this, Jesus. It's in the bag. It's all good. And Jesus told him later on, I know what I'm talking about, Peter. In fact, in verse 30, Jesus continues and he takes Peter deeper into understanding exactly what's going to happen. And Jesus says to him, this very night before a rooster crows twice, 
You yourself will deny me how many times? Three times. What does the self-confident Peter do? Verse 31. Peter kept saying insistently. And look what he says. It's beautiful, right? It's, it's, it's a wonderful song to sing or it's beautiful prayer to pray. He says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But he said in the flesh. It was a carnal prayer masquerading itself into a holy prayer. I, I will not deny you. If I have to die, everybody will, will fall away. Not I, 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 I disease. Yes, I disease. It comes with uh, inflammation, if you recall, in the head. Instead of listening, Peter was, was speaking. And instead of getting a pen and paper and begin to write down every word that comes out of the master's mouth, Peter felt like he needed to correct the teacher. Self-confidence renders a person, now listen to this, unteachable. Whatever you would say to, to Peter, it would just bounce off his forehead. Because you're confident of your own judgment. Self-confident people don't seek godly counsel. They're convinced on the direction of life. Why should they listen to their brothers when they correct them? Again, read this again. Peter kept saying what? Insistently. Over and over again. You see, self-confidence renders a person stubborn. No matter how much you warn him or plead with him, man, please don't go that direction. Just like Peter, the self-confident person, he drives his index fingers into his ears, closes his eyelids, and he never listens. Never. That's the first step to denying Christ. What does that lead to? Second step. Not the second point. We'll, we'll have the second point later. Second step in denying Christ, in uh, self-confidence. You know what it leads to? Self-confidence leads to sleepy Christians, apathetic Christians. So we find that the next mention of Peter is in verse 37. Let's read it. It says, and he, that's Jesus, he came and found them sleeping. And then he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? And if you recall, Jesus came to, to Peter three times. Three times you would say to, to Peter, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. But Peter feels confident of, confident of his own godliness. He's so godly. And because he's so godly and he's so confident of his own godliness, 
He doesn't feel like he needs to pray. No need to depend on God or call upon God or listen to God. You know, if, if we had an injection, a truth serum injection, and injected Peter at this moment, and asked Peter, why are you sleeping? When you heard clearly the words of Jesus to watch and pray, why are you insisting to sleep? And then Peter would begin to share with us what is really in his mind. You know what Peter would say? Peter would say, I don't need another Bible study. Peter would say, I'm over this. I don't need another prayer meeting. All I need is just to sleep. (laughs) But why, Peter? Don't you know that there is temptation coming your way? Hasn't the master forewarned you? I don't understand. Peter is not really relying on God to fight temptation. No, no matter how theologically sound he may come across, he's not relying on God. If he did, he would have watched and prayed. But he's relying on his own strength. Self-confidence. So Proverbs 24 verse 33 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You know what we call this? We call this spiritual laziness. But Peter says, oh, no, 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 this is good for me. It's good for me to rest. Self-confidence breeds indifference. It gives birth to complacency. So the person would end up keeping just the bare minimum of his spiritual walk, just only to silence his conscience. But any fire for Christ is extinguished by pouring cold water of apathy. There is no race to run, no sacrifices to be made. Why? Because Peter is too busy yawning. An apathetic Christian, he'll always justify why he takes the path of least resistance. Apathy. Sleepy. Christians is a byproduct of self-confidence. And in the third step, third step is self-will. Sleepy Christians don't know how to spell the word submit. They don't have anyone to obey. They just obey what they have in their mind to do. That they are their own masters. And we see this in verse 47, when Peter acted in his own accord. We read in verse 47, but one of those, and we know who this one is, it's Peter. We know that from the other uh, uh, gospel accounts. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. There was absolutely no need for this reckless action. Absolutely not. And Jesus, in fact, in another gospel account, rebuked Peter for this. Peter, Jesus already foretold 
Peter so many times that this is part of God's redemptive plan. How Jesus will be arrested and he will suffer and die and three days later will rise again. But instead of listening again, Peter just acted on his own accord. And instead of submitting, Peter drew his sword. And without taking Jesus' advice, he just did what was right in his own eyes. Peter was one-man show, a lone ranger. A pathetic Peter, he lives in his own virtual island. And like Peter, self-confident people don't really believe the verse in Proverbs that says, in Proverbs 11.14, that says, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. No godly counsel to seek after, as far as Peter's concerned. So self-confidence leads to sleepy Christians, leads to self-willed decision-making. And finally, number four, the self-willed will ultimately place the person in a spiritually dangerous place that he shouldn't be at. Peter put himself in a place of a spiritual danger, a place where demonic activities are running rampant. Uh, This courtyard of the high priest is a place of spiritual attack that was beyond Peter's ability to resist. What can you say to the I got this kind of Christian? What can you say? Peter was controlled by his own ego more than he's been led by the word of Christ. He felt self-sufficient. He felt infallible. Peter was a fool. But in his own eyes, he was wise. Intelligent. Courageous. So he dared to place himself in a place where anybody would have stumbled. But not so with Peter. He felt invincible so much that he thought he could override the spiritual law of gravity. You know what the spiritual law of gravity is, right? Let me tell you what it is. Brothers, sisters, you place yourself in a spiritual dangerous ground and you will fall. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But what can we say to the self-sufficient, sleepy, apathetic, self-willed Peter? So it was inevitable for Peter to collapse. Inevitable. May this be a great warning to all of us this morning. Let us flee from self-confidence. Let us repent of our apathy and submit to the will of God. Lest we find ourselves in the place of Peter. Well, this is Peter before the fall. This is Peter before the fall. How terrible was his fault? How severe? Let's have a look at Peter at the fall. Let's see how serious. This fall was. 
so that we watch God ourselves from these four steps of death. Peter at the fallen. Now we begin verse 66. So you can say that the first point is introduction, extension to the introduction. But verse 66, we say we see here, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Now let's set the scene. Um, first of all, looking closely at the narrative, we discovered that um, uh, this event took place exactly at the same time as a previous narrative when Jesus was tried. And so what Mark is doing here, and if you look closely, you'll find even within a passage of Jesus being in trial, is that Mark is switching between the two narratives, two scenes, um, but they both happen concurrently. So again, this would have taken place um, at 1 a.m. at the start of the trial of Jesus. And when it says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, well, the high priest, the palace, he lived in a palace because he was a wealthy man. We looked at this before. Uh, and his palace would have been about two-story high, if not three-story high. And the house would have been a massive U-shaped building. And there is a courtyard in the middle. And this house, it would have been surrounded by a big fence. And there is a gate at the, at the front of the, of, of the house. And so um, to get into the courtyard, you would have to uh, go through the main gate, which is off the main street, of course. And then you enter the gate and then you pass through the porch, which is uh, immediately after the gate. And then after the porch, which is kind of like a corridor, there is um, the courtyard. Now, one more thing that we need to know is that the, this gate is guarded 24-7 by slave girls. And then just, they just there's a roster and they keep an alternating. And because Peter was unknown to Caiaphas, the high priest, he didn't have access to get in. So he was at that time stuck behind the gates. And the Gospel of John 18 verse 16 says that Peter was standing at the door outside so the other disciple, that is John, we know that this is John because of the way he wrote the gospel and the church tradition and all. Anyhow, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So what we have here then is that John went in He's known to the high priest. We don't know how he's known to the high priest, but he managed to get in. And when he went in, he looked back and he found that Peter was stuck behind the, the gates. So what did he do? John went to the slave girl that was guarding the gate and managed to get Peter in. And it's at this point, this slave, slave girl began to be pain in the butt. She was a pest. She started harassing Peter. And so she got close up and she had a good look at Peter. And she thought, well, mm, this guy, Peter, he got in with John, who happens to be a disciple of Jesus. And no doubt when she looked at Peter's face as he entered the palace or the gate of the palace, um, 
He looked deeply troubled. It looked like he killed someone. Almost killed someone. We know that because he cut the, um, the slave's ear. His face must have been pale. What's the matter with this guy? And she begins to be suspicious of, of Peter. Could it be that Peter is one of Jesus' disciples? Hmm. And she doesn't let it go. She, she holds on to this thought. And in verse 67, it says, And seeing Peter warming himself, it's in the middle of the night. This palace was in Jerusalem, which is about 800 meters elevated above the sea level. So it must have been freezing cold at that time. And so you can just imagine soldiers and slaves and servants. They would have been um, around the fire, the lit up fire, and they're sticking their hands out to warm their hands and rubbing it. And uh, some of them are sitting really close. Others are standing a bit further up and they're having a chat together. And what does Peter do? He gets in and between them, tries to blend in with the crowd. And while he's warming himself up, that same girl that opened the door for him, she came close and it says they're seeing Peter and she looked at him. Luke adds, she looked at him intently. So she takes advantage now of this glowing embers of the fire. She takes a really good close look at Peter's face and she was studying him. She looked at him intently, meaning she wanted to play the role of being a detective and Peter was her case. And while she was staring at Peter, finally she blurts out and she said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Now, why does she add the word Nazarene? Nazarene is a derogative term. You recall when um, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? So she's looking down on Peter. That's the point here. It's, it's, it's like saying to someone, well, you, you poor, homeless person, good for nothing, drug that coming out of scumshine. It's kind of like that. Our brothers from New Zealand, they probably don't know that yet, but sunshine is not the best place. It's like Nazarene back 2,000 years ago. All right? All right? And so she asked him, aren't you? I mean, isn't Jesus your ringleader? You druggy person? Kind of like that. Now, one thing also to note is that every gospel account gives a different phrase to what this slave girl said. Now, it doesn't mean that they got it almost right. It just means that there was a lengthy discussion between Peter and uh, this slave girl. It wasn't just a one statement. This is why we continue reading in verse 68. When Peter was intimidated by her and he panicked, it says, but he denied it saying, continually saying, meaning he said many things back and forth, back and forth. So what we need to understand especially for those who want to dissect the, the gospel accounts together. What we need to understand is that every denial was a series of uh, accusations and rebuttals. Every single denial, three denials, but it was quite lengthy, each one of them. In fact, 
In the Gospel of Matthew, it says when, Jesus, when Peter responded, he responded before them all. So it started, what started small started continued on and it became something big and it was all now out in the open and the situation was getting out of hand and, and the fire was getting too hot for Peter to handle. And, and so Peter said, I, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. I've got no idea what you're saying. Luke twenty-two fifty-seven. Peter said something even harsher than this. Luke 50, 22, 57 says, Woman, I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. What an outright lie. Peter, of course you know Jesus. Of course you know him. But Peter the line, this great white shark of the 12 apostles, the one who always spoke with his hairy chest out, he's become a mouse before this lowly slave girl. Mouse. And now being embarrassed and feeling the heat, continuing on, it says, he went out onto the porch. Remember, the porch is next to the gate. So Peter being so scared now, he thought maybe it's a little bit more comfortable to hang out in the dark near, near the gate, away from the light of the fire so he wouldn't be recognized by anybody, um, far away from that slave girl that has been annoying to him, and also the porch right next to the gate. So just in case if anything dangerous might happen, he can just poof, run out. He doesn't want to go out yet because he doesn't want to make it look obvious. So he just, he's calm and collected. He's playing it cool. And while Peter was hiding there at the porch, Peter's relief doesn't last for long. Luke tells us it was only short-lived. It says a short time later. What happens a short time later? Verse 69. The servant girl, the servant girl, meaning the same slave girl, saw him. So this annoying slave, she stuck to Peter like a bad smell. He just couldn't shake it off. And it says, and began once more to say to the bystanders, bystanders this is one of them. She's just got it in for Peter. And if it doesn't get worse, it gets worse actually. Because other people started joining in the party. Matthew 26 verse 71, it says that there is another slave girl that wanted to help out her friend. Said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Luke also says that there was a man. That was there. And, and that man wanted to have a piece of the pie. And he said to Peter, you are one of them too. So they all got together. They tagged him. It was, like a, it was like a rugby team. And everyone wanted to tackle Peter to the ground. But this time, Peter had time to think about what he would say. He wasn't caught of God like the first time. Right? So it wasn't like a defensive reflex. 
like the first denial. And after thinking, verse 70 says, but again he denied it. This time it's premeditated, willful denial. In fact, it was far more intense than just simply denying it because in Matthew 26, Peter added extra spices to his denial. In, verse 20, in chapter 26, verse 72 of Matthew, it says, Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So in the first denial, he says, I don't know him. The second denial is, I don't know that man. Peter adamantly rejected that he had anything to do with Christ. That's sad. This marks Peter's second denial. Well, people were, you know, around Peter. Now he swore with an oath. He doesn't know Jesus. Fair enough. Have your way. Uh, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. So people started retreating. And then it says, after a little while. So uh, Luke says, an hour later. So for an hour, Peter's lurking in the shadows. People during this hour, they would have gone back, sat around the fire and started thinking and talking about it. And then this issue pretty much settled in some people's minds. And then it says here that the bystanders were again saying to Peter. So people started coming to Peter again. And they decided to have a chat with this, this guy, this Peter. This, as we are about to see, this Galilean. So surely you are one of them. For you are a Galilean too. After an hour, they discussed it together. And they came to him and they said, come on, man. You, it's, it's written all over you. You're, you're one of them. You're lying to us. Well, the pressure is now on. It's getting hotter. Um, every time Peter speaks, it's just getting worse and worse. And now he's getting grilled by everyone. And his cover is blown. This is now terrible time. It's a desperate time that calls for drastic measures. So Peter now draws the best he's got. In verse 71, it says, But he began to what? To curse and swear. It wasn't that he was cursing Jesus. People misunderstand this. They come to this and they say, Oh, he was cursing Jesus. It wasn't that. This word curse, it's, it's derived from the word anathema. You know, we know the word anathema, meaning dedicated for destruction. And so when he was cursing, he was basically saying, may I be dedicated for destruction if I was lying? May God damn me. May God kill me if I wasn't saying the truth. Cross my heart and hope to die. What's the truth, Peter? What is it that you're willing to risk being dedicated for destruction for? Tells us. I don't know this man you are talking about. 
I don't know Christ. I never saw him before and I don't know anything about him. I don't know who he is. Peter, it was Jesus that healed your mother-in-law. It was Jesus that saved you when you were drowning. It was Jesus that invited you to go with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter. Him. It was him, Peter, Jesus Christ, who chose you to be one of his disciples. To be the the closest circle to him. To be the closest of the closest circle to him. Jerry's daughter, remember when he rose up from the dead? He invited you. He gave you a special invitation, Peter. You don't know Jesus? Peter lost touch with reality. Confused soul. He's become disloyal, full of deceit. What happened? Peter has become a lying, coward, unfaithful, untrustworthy disciple of Jesus. Who, may I remind you, just a few hours earlier, thought of himself to be invincible. Thinking that he's the best of the best. Now he went in nosedive. Shameful fall. And before whom? Before a slave girl. Peter, who witnessed all of Jesus' miracles that we know of, attended all of Jesus' teaching, involved in greatest ministries, studied the best theology. This Peter fell the worst fall and broke his neck. How come? How did that happen? Well, let's recap. Self-confidence leads to sleepy Christian. To self-willed Christians. And the worst and the most terrifying thing of all. He had no idea about it. Until his bones were broken. Let it be a warning to all of us brothers this morning. Let it be a warning to all of us that self-confidence throws even the best of us to the mud and it leaves us wounded. And if we give in to self-confidence, if we do not repent, our souls will bleed apathy and slothfulness. And the apathy will give way to self-will and your self-will When you seek the counsel of me, myself, and I, it will crush us. It will crush us. How will it crush us? Let me tell you how it will crush us. It will lead us to go to places that we should not go. It will lead us to watch stuff that we should not be watching. 
and play games that we should not be playing. We'll be found prostituting our souls, denying our Lord, stabbing our hearts with many bitter thoughts. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, how we're going with this. How are you going with these four steps of death? Where are we at? Search your soul this morning. I plead with each one of you, brother and sister. Can we think of anything more important today than to know how to prevent this? How to tackle these four steps that would lead to our death? Can we? What do we do? How do we apply this in our lives? Let me tell you. Let's have an application for each of these four steps and know exactly how to tackle this problem. And I pray with all of my heart that every brother and sister here in this room would take it to heart and understand that you and I are vulnerable. And unless we take to heart the application, how are we going to grow? First, self-confidence. What do we do about this? Brothers, we must know that even the best of us are susceptible to the worst kind of sin. The seed of every sin lies deep in this soil of our unredeemed flesh. All we need, brothers and sisters, is the right conditions. And these evil weeds will germinate and grow and blossom. We must know that nothing good dwells in our flesh. We must know this. We must know that had it not been the grace of our God that protects us, we would be like a broken home, broken house without doors, without windows, defenseless sheep without a shepherd. Even the smallest wolf of temptation would feast on us and devour us. We must know this. Brothers, we must believe that on our own, we are the most vulnerable. That we're not a match for the devil. That's the first application. Second, apathy. How do we tackle apathy? We must cling to God. Like little children, we must wrap our arms around Jesus' leg. We must say to Jesus, oh, how we need you, Lord. We must believe, we must believe that Christ is our breath, our bread, our head. That we can't breathe even once without him. We must believe that Christ is our joy and our delight. That there is no true joy. There is no peace outside of Jesus Christ. We must know this, brothers. We must believe this. That's apathy. Number three, self-will. Doing and living 
our lives according to our own accord? What do we do? How do we kill this self-will? We must say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, what you say, I will obey. I will not follow my feelings, my money, my comfort, my fame, my friends, my family. Lord Jesus, my heart is your home. My eyes are fixed upon you and my will is committed to your will. Meaning, Lord Jesus, you tell me how high and I'll jump. I will follow your commands, seeking your advice. You take me anywhere. All the time I'm going to follow you, no matter the distance I travel, the price I pay or how long it will take. Your only way to shatter self-will is to submit to the will of another. Number four. What about placing oneself in a spiritually dangerous place? You can say, Lord, I want to be that godly man in Psalm 1. Amen? I want to be a godly, that godly man and someone. I want you to bless me, Lord. What does it mean I want to be this man, this godly man in someone? It means I'm not going to sit in the seat of scoffers or stand in the path of sinners and then call it, oh, I'm just having a little fun, little entertainment, little relaxation. No. No deal. With hanging out with scoffers. No, rather because I am committed to you, Lord Jesus. I want to sit with godly men who will remind me of you. Fellowship with saints who will guide me to you. And open my heart for their godly counsel. Lord Jesus, I want to talk of you, think of you, worship you, obey you, serve you, live for you. For the rest of my life. Even if people accuse me of being fundamental or full on. Brothers, because the alternative is death to our souls. Death to our souls. We compromise in one area. And you follow the footsteps of Peter and you'll find yourself denying the Lord as he did. All it takes is just one hole in a ship. And it will sink. No compromise. All out for Christ. It's the least that we ought to respond to his work on the cross and his love for us, brothers and sisters. You know, one thing that we can say, okay, Peter, we understand. We understand how you have fallen. One thing that we have that he does not have is that he fell on the fence 
of the old covenant. The Pentecost was a few weeks later. So he didn't have this empowerment of the Holy Spirit internally in him as we do now. What's our excuse? I pray that we take heed lest we fall and we make whatever sacrifice is necessary to the glory of God. And I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, none of us will regret it even for eternity to come. No one has obeyed the Lord Jesus and regretted obeying him, no matter the sacrifices they made. So I invite all of us, including myself, to live for God his way and prevent this wicked, wicked, destructive path that leads to our death. Right? Or what if we have fallen as Peter fallen? What if we deny the Lord Jesus? What if we search our hearts and we find ourselves denying him? What if that? What do we do? How do we respond biblically? Stay tuned for next week. All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you, Lord, for this great warning. Though it may not arouse the right emotions in our, in our hearts, Lord, but we don't follow feelings. We're not here to feel too comfortable. We're here to know how to worship you your way, Lord. And so we give you all our lives, all our weaknesses and strength. Search our hearts, Lord. Lead us, Lord, to, to the path of righteousness. Give us the strength that we need in order to obey your commands. In Jesus' name, amen.